with you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to John chapter 5. I'll give a little disclaimer. I do most of my preaching at the chapel services for the Colony of Mercy, and they are required to sit up in the front. And so I am conditioned to look at the first few rows. And so those of you sitting in the first few rows, if I pay you too much attention, I apologize in advance. Um, you may be familiar with C.S. Lewis's famous quote from Mere Christianity, where he wrote that a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, and you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. That idea isn't even original to C.S. Lewis. 700 years earlier, Thomas Aquinas, in his commentary on John, on John chapter 5, verse 18, said, Christ is either a liar or equal to God. But if he is equal to God, Christ is God by nature. And now, since we're all here in church on Sunday morning, most of us would probably say amen to that and go along with our day comfortable and confident that we have Jesus as Lord and we believe that Jesus is God, and so we're all good. There's a flip side to that coin. A few years ago, I came across a book called My Imaginary Jesus. And it's fictional, it's funny, at times even a little sacrilegious. Um, but the whole premise is that we all think that we have Jesus figured out. When really we have these imaginary versions of him that we mista we've mistaken for the real thing. And so the protagonist of the story uh, spends the entire book chasing, at times avoiding, sometimes even fighting off, all of these imaginary Jesuses, like magic eight-ball Jesus, perpetually angry Jesus, testosterone Jesus, King James Jesus, a bargain Jesus who always answers our prayers but for a price, liberal social services Jesus, conservative truth-telling Jesus, political Jesus, peacenik Jesus, TV televangelist Jesus, meticulous providence Jesus and free will Jesus, a Jesus for every denomination, CEO Jesus, legalist Jesus, all in his attempts to come to find and know the right one, the real one. But when he does come to meet the real one, he's kind of disappointed that it, he doesn't look like the imaginary Jesus that he had believed in all along. And I think those are the two extremes that we're tempted to vacillate between as believers. The temp temptation to limit Jesus to being not much more than a good human teacher on the one hand, and the temptation to claim him as Lord while suddenly remaking him into our image on the other. And in John chapter 5, Jesus challenges both of those temptations. And so I'm going to read the extended passage. I'm actually going to back up a verse and start in John chapter 5, verse 18, and read through the end of the chapter. And then we'll pray. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. 
For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. <coughs> For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. God, that you are a God who reveals himself, that you do not leave us groping in the darkness trying to find you, but that you come to us, or that you speak to us through your word. So Lord, we thank you for this text this morning. Father, I pray that the spirit who inspired these words so many years ago would illuminate them for us this morning, open the ears of our hearts to hear what you have to say to us. Father, convict us where we need conviction, comfort us where we need comfort. May we come to know and love Jesus more fully through our time in your word today. And Father, I pray for myself that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be acceptable before you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, just off the bat, <clears throat> you have two points there on your outline. We are going to spend most of our time in the first point um, because Pastor Jonathan left me the passage that is full of theology. This is one of the 
the most critical, foundational, important passages in all of Scripture for the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and so we are going to spend some time in that first point kind of fleshing out some of that theology and what that means as we come to Jesus. Uh, and then our, most of our application will be in that second point. Uh, but one of the first things I think the, the overarching theme of this first half of this passage is that the authority of the Son challenges our desire to be spiritual but not religious. The authority of the Son challenges our desire to be spiritual but not religious. The number of people in our country who identify as spiritual but not religious or spiritual but not affiliated has doubled in the past 15 years. It was about 15% of the country in 2007 to now it's about 30% of the country that identify as, as being spiritual but having no religious affiliation. And while that probably doesn't apply to many people in this room since we're in church on a Sunday morning, there can still be a temptation in us to fall into a kind of Christianized version of that. After all, we love to claim that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And while there's a lot of truth to that, emphasizing the relationship aspect of Christianity over the religion aspect of Christianity can easily lead us to lose sight of the fact that our relationship is with a higher power, a being greater than ourselves, and not with a peer. That Jesus is the one in authority in this relationship. And that while we might be able to define the terms of our other relationships, we don't get to define the terms in this one. And we can easily forget that Jesus is Lord and begin to think of him as little more than a buddy or my homeboy as was popularized on t-shirts a couple of decades ago or just a good moral teacher. And here in John chapter 5, Jesus claims three areas of authority that speak directly to the assertion of Lewis and Aquinas that someone cannot speak the way that Jesus spoke, make the claims that Jesus made, and remain a good moral human teacher. And the first of those authorities, which is the overarching one, is that Jesus claims to have divine authority. He claims to have divine authority in verses 18 through 20. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Jesus uses such a specific analogy that some scholars argue that these verses are the remnant of a parable. One that speaks of a son apprenticing for his father. Perhaps Jesus was drawing on his own experience of having apprenticed as a carpenter with Joseph. And yet, even if Jesus was referring uh, to the idea of apprenticeship, it would just barely scratch the surface on what he's saying. Because what Jesus is really getting at is that the Father's work and the Son's work are one and the same. That the Father does nothing without the Son, and the Son does nothing without the Father, and that everything the Father does, the Son does also, and vice versa. And there are two ways to to interpret what Jesus is saying here. The first, which was favored by many of the early church fathers, is that Jesus is speaking of his divinity. He is claiming to be equal to God. 
Uh, almost as though he knows what the Jewish leaders are thinking in verse 18, that he knows they're plotting to kill him because he's claiming to be God, to be equal to God. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, well, if you think that was bad, wait until you hear this. And he doubles down on what he was saying in the first part of chapter 5. And according to this view, Jesus is describing what theologians refer to as the doctrine of inseparable operations. And the doctrine of inseparable operations affirms that any work of God in creation, creating, governing, redeeming, whenever God interacts with creation, it is a joint work of all three persons of the Trinity because their shared divine essence includes both a shared divine will and a shared divine power. In other words, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do not possess three separate wills and three separate powers, but one will and one power in accordance with their shared divine essence. There is no hierarchy of authority and submission within the Godhead, within the Trinity, because their shared deity necessitates a shared will. The way we sometimes think of the Trinity is three musicians performing one piece of music, and yet that is not the way the Trinity works. They are not three separate musicians performing one piece of music. They act in concert as one divine being, in one act of a will, one divine power. And this is why the analogy of apprenticeship just breaks down, because as Hilary of Poitier, a fourth century bishop, explained, the son does not merely mimic what he has seen the father doing, nor does he learn from what the father does and inherit the family business, as it were. Rather, because he is the same nature and essence as the father, he cannot not do what the father does. Since he is God just as the father is God, the son must do what the father does and cannot do otherwise. And this is why that in revealing uh, that when Jesus does something, he reveals what is true of both the Father and the Son. And a few years later, Augustine agreed with Hillary that Jesus is not merely imitating God or learning from God. And he argues that what Jesus was saying was that the whole Son is from the Father. His whole substance and power is from him who begot him. He said that he does these things in the same way that the Father does so that we do not think that the Father does some things and the Son other things. Rather, with the same power, the Son does the very same things that the Father does when the Father does them through the Son. That's a fancy way of saying, how does the Father create? The Father creates through the Son, speaking all things into existence through the power of his word. How does the Father govern? He governs through the Son, holding all things together through the power of his word. How does the Father redeem? He redeems through the Son, making all things new through the word made flesh and the proclamation of the word preached and lived by his people. The Son does the very same things that the Father does when the Father does them through the Son. The Godhead operates inseparably in the created order. The Son does and can only do what the Father also does because they share a divine essence, which means that they share one divine will and one divine power to act out that will. The second way to take what Jesus says was favored by reformers like John Calvin, 
who argued that Jesus' emphasis is not on his divinity, but on his humanity. That Jesus is speaking about what is true of the Son in the incarnation, in his earthly existence. And according to this view, it was not the unity of the divine will that Jesus was communicating, but the submission of his human will to his divine will. And those are the only two options, just as a quick aside. The unity of the divine will or the submission of Jesus' human will. It cannot be, as some have argued in recent years, about the submission of the Son's divine will to the Father's will because they share a will. So Jesus does not have a separate divine will to submit to the Father. But in this, in this case, these verses speak to Jesus not only being a human, but the human. We often look at the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness by the devil as a DIY manual, do-it-yourself manual for overcoming temptation. And we preach sermons with step-by-step instructions for how you, like Jesus, can overcome the enemy's temptation in your life by applying scripture like he did. And this might sound a little wrong, it might sound heretical, but when we do that, we completely miss the point. In all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus' temptation occurs right after his baptism. And Mark makes the timing explicitly clear. In Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, it says the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So immediately after God declares Jesus to be his beloved son in whom he is well pleased, The Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days, where, among other things, he spent time with animals. Uh, And the 40 days in the wilderness are obviously meant to remind us of Israel's time in the wilderness. And I would argue that this seemingly random mention of animals is meant to remind us of the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2 verse 19 says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. What I think we see in Mark is God bringing the animals to the second Adam just as he brought them to the first Adam. And that's the point of the temptation narratives. While there is wisdom in learning from how Jesus handled and resisted temptation, ultimately the reason why the gospel writers recorded his temptation is not primarily to give us pointers, but to reveal who Jesus is by telling us that he succeeded where Adam and Israel had failed. That Jesus is the second Adam, that he is the true Israel. Finally, in a person, in the person of Jesus, a human being, a man, resisted temptation, obeyed God, and accomplished the work that the Father had given him to do. And what we as readers of Scripture, if we start in the beginning and read forward, when we get to his temptation narratives, we should be seeing what we have been waiting to happen ever since Genesis 3. That a man was given a a command by God, he was given a work to do by the Father, and he did it. He didn't succumb to temptation. Now, whenever new believers or unbelievers ask my advice on what they should read in their Bibles, I always tell them to start in John because he reveals Jesus in both his humanity and his divinity. And if you haven't guessed, I don't think John is trying to tell us about one or the other. I think he's trying to tell us about both. It's both and, not either or. John's point 
uh, in communicating this passage, what Jesus was telling his original audience is about both his divinity, his unity with the Father, and his humanity, his unity with our human flesh in the incarnation. In his divinity, the Son does only what he has seen the Father do because he is of one essence and one nature with the Father and shares one will and one power with him. And in his humanity, the Son does only what he has seen the Father do because he is the true and better Adam and the true and better Israel, who though tempted in every way as we are, remains without sin. And I think the author of Hebrews draws the same parallel when he writes in chapter 5, verse 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became a source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And that's mind-blowing. The second person of the Trinity, the Son, who shares a will with the Father, learned obedience through suffering. Paul says something similar in Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, where he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The incarnation, the the union of the Godhead with human flesh is the only way to, to make sense of passages like these. Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Because he was in the form of God, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death on a cross. And because he learned obedience and suffered on the cross, God highly exalted him. Which is why Jesus could go on to say in John 5, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Because since the Father and the Son share their nature, their will, and their power, they also share their glory. And so Jesus claims divine authority. He claims to be equal with God, the second person of the Trinity. He also claims to be the true and better Adam, the true and better Israel, the Messiah who had been promised in the Old Testament. And then building off of that, he claims that he has life-giving authority. Verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The raising of the dead and the giving of life are prerogatives that are God's alone to give in Scripture. And so Jesus is claiming divine authority over life itself. And he claims this authority in two ways. First is what Paul describes in Ephesians 1 when he writes about the immeasurable greatness of, the, of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The resurrection life of Jesus, the power that raised Jesus from the dead on that first Easter Sunday morning, raises, serves to raise us from spiritual death 
and raise us to spiritual life. As Paul said in Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And here in John 5, Jesus says in verse 22, that the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. And then in verse 24, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. A couple of Sundays ago, Pastor Jonathan mentioned the similarities between this section of John and the section that began back in chapter 2. Uh, with John in chapter 2, Jesus went to Cana, performed a miracle, then continued going up to Jerusalem. And then starting at the end of chapter 4, he once again goes to Cana, performs a miracle, and goes up to Jerusalem. And the connections between the two passages continue into this one. Jesus speaking of judgment and of those who believe in him avoiding judgment and passing from death to life should remind us of his conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3. John three fourteen and 15, Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Or John the Baptist goes on to say at the end of chapter 3 in verses 35 through 36 that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And if we're honest, we're probably a lot more comfortable with John 3, 35 and 36, where eternal life is attributed to the Son and wrath is attributed to God. Then we are here with John 5, where Jesus attributes both judgment and life to the Son. Uh, for reasons we don't have time to go into this morning, we are much more comfortable thinking about the Father as judge than about Jesus as judge. But Jesus is clear that the Father has given judgment, the authority to judge, to the Son. Fleming Rutledge, who's an Anglican priest, says that God's judgment upon sin is an aspect of his mercy, not the opposite of it. <clears throat> and she goes on to use the illustration of the magnetic needle of a compass, saying that the upper end of the needle consistently seeks the North Pole. At the same time, the same upper magnetic end is repelled from the South Pole. They are not two separate magnetic forces at work, but one only. The same magnetism that causes the working end of the needle to point north causes it to point away from south. Thus, to be for us and for our salvation, God must be against all that would threaten or destroy that purpose. And so it was not enough just to give the authority to give life to the Son. For God to give the authority to give life to the Son, he also had to give the authority to judge to the Son. Because to be for us, Jesus had to be against all that works against his purposes for us. And so the son having the authority to judge is the flip side of the coin of, having, of him having the authority to give eternal life. And this makes all the more sense when we consider that, the, that belief in the son, belief in Jesus Christ, is what determines whether one receives judgment 
or life. The authority to judge and give life is a reminder that all roads do not lead to God. That as Jesus will go on to say later in John's gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But Jesus' authority to raise the dead and give life is not limited to giving us new life in the here or now. The Christian hope is not limited to this life, nor even to life after death. The Christian hope is life after life after death. The Christian hope is resurrection. And so Jesus says that he has life-raising authority, not just life-giving authority. Verses 25 through 29, what Pastor Jonathan read before the sermon. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And we need to do a little more uh, theology here uh, because both Trinitarian theology and the Incarnation take center stage in these few verses. Jesus says that the Father has granted the Son to have life in himself just as the Father has life in himself. This is the doctrine of eternal generation. Uh, in classical Trinitarian theology, the distinction between the persons of the Godhead is one of origin. The Father, by necessity, by virtue of his nature, begets the Son, but without dividing the divine essence. The Son has the same self-existing life as the Father. He needs no other source of life than himself because he is life itself. The difference is that the Son's life is given by or originates in the Father, while the Father's life is ungiven or unoriginated. And yet, though the Father gives the Son to have life in himself, there was never a time when the Father was without the Son. And though the Son receives life from the Father, there was never a time when the Son did not have life, nor was the Son's life ever different or lesser than the Father's because it had been given. The Father is the Father because of the Son, and the Son is the Son because of the Father, and they are co-equal and co-eternal. The Father has always been the Father from eternity past, and the Son has always been the Son from eternity past. And the two, along with the Holy Spirit, have always acted as one divine being. And so again, in response to the Jewish leaders threatening to kill him for making himself equal with God, Jesus doubles down. He is not only equal with God, he is God. He is Yahweh who was revealed in the Old Testament, now revealed in human flesh. But although he has the authority to give life by virtue of his divinity, he says he is given the authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is an eschatological, an end times title. In the Old Testament, the Son of Man always pointed forward to the end of days. And it shows up especially in Ezekiel, Daniel, a couple of apocryphal books. And it is one of Jesus' favorite terms for himself. He uses it 80 times in the Gospels. He calls himself the Son of Man. 
And likely because it's so full of meaning, it encompasses his authority, his suffering, his death, and his exaltation. And here he's likely emphasizing his authority, drawing on passages like Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, where it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so Jesus' authority to judge is given to him as part of all things being put under his feet. Which Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection reminds us of it is all things. Jesus stomping out death is a sign that all things are being put under his feet. And this is why the spiritual but not religious, or even the relationship not a religion viewpoint falls so short. Because it makes Jesus so much smaller than he actually is. It overlooks his authority both as true God and as the true man. Jesus is not one God among many. He is not your homeboy, though he does call you his friend. He is the word who was in the beginning, who was with God and who is God. He is the word through whom all things were made and without whom nothing was made that was made. He is the one in whom was life and that life was the light of men, the true light which gives light to everyone. And he is the one who gives the right to become children of God to all who receive him and believe in his name. So what Jesus is claiming is that it's not enough to be vaguely spiritual. It's not enough just to be seeking some God of your own understanding. What he's saying is that true life, both now and in the age to come, is found only in him, because it is in him, in the person of Jesus Christ, that humanity, our flesh, is united to God. And so the authority of Jesus that the authority of the Son challenges our desire to be spiritual but not religious. But secondly, the witnesses to the Son challenge our desire to be religious but not spiritual. The witnesses to the Son challenge our desire to be religious but not spiritual. Because while we need to be careful not to reject the religious aspects of Christianity for the relational ones, we must be careful not to reject the relationship. And while we spent a lot of time on the first half of the passage, because that's where all the theology was that needed to be sorted out, this is the part that most of us probably need to hear. In the opening chapters of his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, Henry Nouwen describes the experience of coming to realize that while he had always thought of himself as the younger brother in that parable, in actuality he was a lot like the older brother. And that's my story, and I'm assuming it's, a, it's many of yours as well. We like to read the Gospels and identify with the needy people who come to Jesus for help and for healing. And of course, that's true. Uh, all of us are. We have been that needy person who comes to Jesus for help and healing. But we aren't quite as quick to identify with the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. But what I think we need to constantly be reminded of is that we're them too. 
And just as we need Jesus' word to the needy and the poor, we also need his word to the religious and the pharisaical. Because one of the stark realities of the parable of the prodigal son is that the older brother was just as consumed with the father's stuff as the younger brother was. And in trying to earn it and in feeling entitled to it, he completely missed out on a relationship with his father. Both the younger brother and the older brother went chasing after what could only be found in relationship with the father. And I think that's some of what Jesus is driving at in this last portion of John chapter 5. He cautions us against becoming so obsessed with God's stuff, so obsessed with what God gives us, that we miss out on God, that we miss out on, on Jesus. And he goes through three witnesses that God has given people that bear testimony to who Jesus is. And the first is God's messengers. In verses 33 through the first half of 36, Jesus says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Jesus points out that, that the, the people, the religious leaders, had been drawn and attracted to John's ministry. But they had managed to completely miss the point that John had been pointing to Jesus all along. And that's something that the Apostle John makes abundantly clear. And every word out of John the Baptist's mouth in the first three chapters of John's gospel is pointing to Jesus, getting the attention off of himself and on to Jesus. And yet the people seem to have missed it. Uh, John in uh, John chapter 5 verse 43 Jesus says I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me if another comes in his own name you will receive him D.A. Carson on this verse says the chief punishment of the liar is not so much that he is not believed but that he does not believe similarly the chief judgment on those who deny that Jesus is the promised Messiah the son of God is not so much that they have no Messiah but that they follow false messiahs for those of you who are the younger brothers this likely looks like the samaritan woman at the well from john 4 looking to satisfy her thirst with things other than the living water that only jesus provides for those of us who are older brothers this probably looks like what paul encountered in corinth where people were dividing up into followers of paul and followers of apollos and followers of peter instead of followers of Christ. Only now our names are different. And so it might be John Calvin or Jacobus Arminius. It might be Jonathan Edwards or John Wesley, Charles Spurgeon or John MacArthur or Tim Keller. It might be Pastor Jonathan or Redeemer Fellowship or America's Keswick. We, we identify with the people in ministries and churches instead of with Christ. And whenever we begin to follow or identify with a preacher, teacher, author, church, ministry, instead of Christ, we've completely missed the point. Because the whole point of those people and places is to point us to Jesus. And whether they make it all about themselves or we make it all about them, the result is the same. We miss Christ. And that is why Paul was careful to say in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul knew that his only usefulness was in pointing to and helping people follow Jesus. 
And in whatever way he failed to do that, the people were better off following and imitating someone else. And so the first witness, God's messengers, Jesus points out the fact that we are so prone to follow them instead of him. The second witness, Jesus' works. Verse, the second half of verse 36, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. In just a few verses in John 6, 2, he will tell us that a large crowd was following Jesus because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. But while the signs were enough to draw interest, again, many who came completely missed the point. John 10, 24 The Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And John 12, 37, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. They were so focused on the signs, so focused on the works that Jesus was doing, that they missed Jesus. Sometimes this will look like us putting the focus on the music or on the experience, the feeling that we're trying to drum up within ourselves. Other times it will look like putting the focus on the programming or all the ministries that we're involved in. This is a great temptation for those of us who are in ministry, are in leadership, do a lot for the church. Evaluating our relationship with God on the basis of either what we're doing for him or for you talking spiritually, what he's doing through us, or what he's doing for us. And we put the focus so much on ministry that we forget Jesus. We become so religious that we've abandoned our relationship with Jesus. And finally, the third witness is Scripture. Verses 37 through 40, Jesus says, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Then verses 45 through 47, he says, Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me, but you do not believe his writings. How will you believe my words? I might get myself in a little bit of trouble for saying this, but I think it's what Jesus is saying in this passage. There is a wrong way to read your Bible. There are ways to read your Bible that do more harm, at least in the short term, than good. And we Protestants have rightly, I believe, emphasize things like sola scriptura, scripture alone. We've taught people to read and translated scripture also more people could read their Bibles. We've emphasized the importance of being in the word regularly, if not daily, and created endless ways to help people do that. But in doing so, it can be easy for us to drift from one extreme to the other and make scripture the end instead of the means to an end. Because the end is Jesus period, full stop. We don't go to the Bible to get the Bible. We go to the Bible, all of the Bible, every single page to get Jesus. Jesus is the point of it all. 
The Bible's contribution to our salvation is that it reveals it to us. It does not accomplish it for us. Jesus does that. And it might seem like a fine distinction to draw, but it's a necessary one because when we don't draw it, we end up missing the point. We go to Scripture and find the law of Moses instead of the love of Jesus. We find ourselves rather than our God. We find partisan political politics rather than the call to God's kingdom. The goal of the Christian life isn't to know the most scripture or the most theology. It is to know and become more like Jesus. And if we walk away from this passage or this sermon all excited to go learn more about the doctrine of inseparable operations or eternal generation or to look up cross-references so that we can study them rather than to, to meet Jesus, we've missed the point. Now, I believe that learning about all those things can help us come to, to know and love Jesus. But he's the end game. The, the theological and biblical knowledge isn't. And that's why we need to remember Jesus speaks this word not to the sinners, but to the religious. He speaks this word to the people who would have been in church on Sunday morning. To the people who had the word of God and thought that possessing it and studying it is what made them right with God. Again, to people who, if they were around today, would look an awful lot like us. At the risk of contributing to that problem, I want to wrap up by talking just for a minute about Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Um, I'm a firm believer that those two books are meant to be read as a unit. Proverbs begins with the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom, and Ecclesiastes ends with the fear of the Lord as the end or the goal of wisdom. And I want to suggest that Jesus is doing something similar here. In the first half of this passage, Jesus is presenting himself as the beginning or the source of eternal life. And here in the second half of the passage, he is presenting himself as the end, the goal of eternal life. He is the one who gives us life, who resurrects us to new life. And he is the goal to which that new life is headed. Author of Hebrews in chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, I think wraps all this up nicely. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So consider Jesus, he's the point. He is the point of all of it. He is worthy of more glory than Moses because he's the builder of the house. He is the one with the authority over life. And we enter into that house and remain in it through faith when we place our confidence and our hope in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your word. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, Lord. He is the point of it all. And Lord, we are so tempted to get distracted by all the shiny things that we see. Lord, we are tempted to even be distracted by the things that you give us to reveal him to us. And so, Father, as we 
prepare to go and partake of the Lord's table. Father, to be reminded of Jesus' sacrifice for us, to be reminded of the price that was paid. Lord, I pray that you would reveal those, those areas in our life where we are not recognizing his authority, where we, are, where we are clinging to our own authority, where we are lowering him down and reshaping him into our own image. Lord, help us to, to see those, those things, the, the good things, messengers and ministry and scripture, where maybe we're putting those things at the focal point and pursuing them instead of pursuing Jesus. Father, reshape our vision. Help us to behold Jesus this morning. Help us to come to know him as he truly is, not as we conceive him to be. And as we do that, may it change our lives. And I pray these things in his name. Amen.